So we are blessed to have Hans Stennis-Spiedel, I got it twice, right, with us this morning. Uh, Hans came to Madison uh, for school seven-ish years ago, got his degree in psychology. Uh, Hans uh, is at Red Village Church and uh, preaches there occasionally and leads some some programs over there. And I'm going to let you talk now, so... (laughs) Thank you, Peter. Well, thank you all for having me. It's really a blessing to be here today. Charles Spurgeon, when he had the chance to interact with visitors uh, before the service, routinely brought them to the basement of the Metropolitan Tabernacle to what he called the furnace room. Here the visitors would see many of the congregants on their knees in prayer. They went before God in earnest supplication for the people who came to the church. Spurgeon, called the Prince of Preachers, credited them as the power source or furnace for his ministry and for the great revival that was sparked in London at that time. His ministry was not about one great orator, but about people who loved Jesus on their knees before the throne of a great God who was able to do abundantly more than all they could ask or think. So our passage of study is Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. If you want to turn there now, uh, we'll... I'll read that passage, and uh, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll work through it together. This is Ephesians 3.14. Paul wrote this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can explore your word together. I pray that we would learn more about the riches that you've blessed us with in Christ today. And if anyone here doesn't know Christ yet, I pray that they would see how great a Savior he is, how worthy he is of all our praise and adoration. And I pray that we would grow in sanctification and that we would grow as people who come before you in prayer daily, who rely on you, who abide in you. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. 
Amen. This message will have two main sections. First, we'll unpack the model of prayer that's put forth in the passage and how the spiritual concepts in the prayer affect our lives as Christians. Second, we'll focus on how we can apply this approach to prayer in our daily lives and routines. Paul prays for spiritual vitality of the Ephesians with three main supplications that build on one another. First, he prays for strengthening through the Spirit. Second, for Christ to dwell in the hearts of the Ephesian Christians. And third, for them to be filled with all the fullness of God. And we should likewise focus on prayers and supplications for those around us, especially that they would know the love of God more deeply and be filled with him. So Paul wrote this letter from prison in Rome around 62 AD. He was familiar with the church in Ephesus since he first visited there with the husband and wife evangelism team Aquila and Priscilla briefly during his second missionary journey and then he returned there for about three years during his third missionary journey. In Acts, Luke discusses Paul interacting both with both Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus and describes the gospel going to the greater region surrounding the city. This seems like that this is the reason that although Paul addresses a church he knows well, he doesn't use personal references very much in this letter. The people in Ephesus itself may know Paul closely, but other area churches who are getting the letter as it circulated around might not have known him. So speaking more generally in this letter makes sense. The church had experienced adversity in Ephesus early on, both from Jews and Gentiles. Despite opposition from the synagogue and a riot started by people who made a living selling idols for the temple of Artemis, Uh, the church grew healthy and was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Many people repented of sin, such as witchcraft and idolatry, while Paul was there. The main purpose of his letter to the Ephesians is to encourage the church to maintain that unity that they have in Christ. He urges them to remember their identity as adopted children of God who are lavishly blessed by him in the earlier chapters of this letter. And then he encourages them in the later chapters to reflect on their identity. Our section of study today is right in the middle of those two halves of this letter. And it's a prayer for the Ephesians to grow in sanctification in specific ways. He actually starts his prayer for the Ephesians in verse 1 of chapter 3 and interrupts himself to explain his calling of ministry to the Gentiles and his deep love for them. In fact, he states specifically that he is a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles who follow Jesus and that they are and he doesn't want them to lose heart over his suffering on their behalf. The the phrase, for this reason, that he uses both in verse 1 of chapter 3 and in verse 14 refers to the fact 
that there's unity in Christ between Jew and Gentile and that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. All who place their faith in Christ have full access to the promises of God through him. Instead of being divided, Ephesians 2 tells us that they are being built together as a holy temple in the Lord. And that Jews and Gentiles who follow Jesus are both citizens and saints in the household of God. In this specific prayer, Paul is kneeling in supplication, which means he's pleading to God with humility and earnestness on behalf of the Ephesians. Standing was the more typical posture of prayer for the Jews in the early world. Uh, But kneeling shows submissiveness, reverence, and adoration for the Father. And Paul also refers to God as Father, just as Jesus taught the disciples to uh, in Matthew 6 when he taught them the Lord's Prayer. Bowing his knees before the Father shows intimacy with God in prayer. All who have become God's children through adoption are able to approach God boldly as Father. In verse 15, Paul speaks about every family in heaven and on earth, which expands on the unity that all saints throughout all generations and nations have in Christ. The word Paul uses that the ESV translates as family is also closely related to the word father in verse 14 and emphasizes that believers from all the tribes of the earth find their identity in God. He is the father of all the fatherhoods, as some translations render it. With this view of unity in mind, the focus of the prayer shifts to the sanctification of all the believers in Ephesus, with the Ephesian Gentiles especially in view. So he starts by putting forward a supplication for strengthening through the Spirit. It tends to be harder for us to understand the spiritual riches that God has than it is to understand earthly wealth, even if we're not people who possess that much earthly wealth. Asking somebody to give according to their earthly wealth means that the more wealth a person has, the more wealth, the more that person is capable of giving. Whether they do or not is a different story, uh, but a person who has more is certainly capable of giving more. Many who have the capacity to give much give almost nothing, and some who have the have almost nothing give away all that they have, like the woman with her two copper coins that Jesus tells us about. God's spiritual riches are beyond comprehension, and we're all beggars in his presence. We're spiritually bankrupt. Paul asks him to grant the Ephesians strength according to that glory that he has. Because God is infinitely glorious, he has the capacity to grant all the strength the believers in Ephesus could ever need. Not only is God able, however, but unlike many earthly wealthy people, God is more than willing to give lavishly from his wealth. In fact, a quick run through 
some of the ways uh, through, through Ephesians expresses some of the ways that God lavishly blesses us. Uh, and here are just a few from Ephesians 1. It says, We've been granted spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world. We have redemption and forgiveness through the blood that Jesus freely gave. We're granted to know the mystery of God's will. We are given an inheritance with Jesus forever. We should meditate on God's word, particularly passages like Ephesians 1, to know how abundantly blessed we are in Christ. Ephesians 3.15, as well as 2 Timothy 1.7 and other passages in Scripture remind us that the Holy Spirit works in us with power in the inner man. The focus here is on the internal rather than on the external. The outward body is not inherently bad, and we should care for it, but it is wasting away while our internal... Our inner man is being renewed by the Spirit's power. And this doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for physical health for ourselves and others, but that we should have a special focus on the spiritual health of other people as we lift them up before the Lord. The purpose of us believers being strengthened is for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith, which is the second supplication that Paul puts forth in this passage for the Ephesian church. The dwelling described here is present continuous tense, meaning that Jesus takes up residence in our hearts and stays there through faith. You might be thinking, I thought Christ dwelled in all believers. Isn't this letter written to a group of believers? The truth is that Christ is in all believers, but this supplication really seems to relate the quality of Christ's presence in us. You might also be thinking, I thought God was everywhere. Why is this talking about Christ dwelling in our hearts? God is omnipresent. But Scripture tells us, like earlier in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, that believers are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Living spiritually strengthened lives makes the heart of a believer a heart that reflects Christ. Practicing Christ's presence through living a spiritually disciplined life, loving well, and repenting of sin makes our hearts places where Christ is magnified and shows the world around us who our great Savior is. When Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, we live in ways that are self-sacrificing, kind, generous, and that glorify God in so many other ways. So the third supplication that Paul puts forth is that we'd be filled with all the fullness of God. Being strengthened by the Spirit and having Christ dwell in our hearts through faith allows us to love as we have been loved. Knowing the truth of Christ and being indwelt with him gives us a firm foundation as we continue growing in him. 
The second half of verse 17 uses the metaphor being rooted and grounded in love to explain this. For an oak tree to grow tall and mighty, its roots need to be firmly planted in good soil. Likewise, for a building to stand, it's of utmost importance that it has a solid foundation. Otherwise, it might topple even during the building process or uh, won't be very stable once it is built. Our houses need to be built on the rock of Christ. Paul prays that not only the Ephesians, but all the saints might have the strength to comprehend God's love. We need his strength to do it. We need the Holy Spirit to be at work in us and to be indwelt by Christ. Trying to measure the vastness of God's love without him at work in us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is like a single person standing on the shore of the Pacific Ocean with a ruler in his hand trying to measure its volume. It's not going to happen. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge utterly and completely. The love that led the man who is sinless, blameless, and perfect to suffer a horrific death and take on the sin of the world isn't a love that we can simply wrap our minds around. All things were created through him, yet he entered into his creation. Truly God and truly man. His agony was not any less than ours would have been. And he was brutalized for us. He became a curse on our behalf and endured the wrath of God the Father that we might be forever blessed. That's love that's too big for us to know. We don't have the capacity to know Christ's love fully because it's too great for us. But we can know that we're loved by him. Jesus didn't stay dead. And he rose again victorious over death on the third day. He ascended into heaven is still at work in his church today. If you've not yet trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, I invite you to consider the love that he has for you and for all who would believe in him. If you repent or turn away from your sin and follow God instead, trusting that Christ died in your place, your sins will be forgiven and you will have an inheritance with Christ forever. This isn't something we can do on our own, but rather the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we are given the gift of faith as a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The joy of knowing the God and King of all creation and growing in his love 
In love for him over time is the greatest joy a person can have. We are created to know him and glorify him through our lives. If you'd like to talk to somebody about knowing Christ or want prayer, Dan and Annette will be waiting at the bottom of the stairs here during the final song, and then they'll be in the library for a short time after service. And you can also feel free to come and talk with me if you want to learn more about that. And if you do know Christ, you know that the love that we've received from him is from an infinitely higher source. And it is a giving and a selfless love. Over time, as we comprehend Christ's love more and more, we're made more like him. We're progressively sanctified or being made holy. Being filled with all the fullness of God seems to mean that we continue to move toward sanctification to the extent that a human can be filled. By definition, we're emptied of self as we're filled with God. We live out the fruit of the Spirit more and more. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because God, in his grace, has shown those things to us. So this section ends with a doxology, or praise, in verses 20 and 21. God has the awesome capacity to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think of requesting him. I don't know about you, but I think Paul requested some pretty massive things in his prayer so far. Things like for the Ephesian church to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and for them to be filled with all the fullness of God. We can think of requests that seem far beyond impossible for us. But God is able to do them. And it's according to the power that's at work within us. It's incredible that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, sanctifying us daily. He's able to do far more abundantly through our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters around the world. And God gets all the glory. It's through his church and in Christ that he receives it. God is glorified through the sanctification of the church throughout all generations, and his church will never pass away. We should be greatly humbled and live our lives in a spirit of worship because God is the one who brings about every good work in us. So knowing all this, why don't we pray? I find that talking with my brothers and sisters, as well as reflecting on my own life, one of the ways that we constantly talk about needing to grow is in our prayer life. We might not pray because we feel like we don't have time. We might be spiritually lazy. We may not feel close to God at that time. Or we might not know where to start in prayer. When my excuse is lack of time or not being close to God, I think the truth is that I'm being spiritually lazy. That might be the case for you too. 
We may have very busy lives, but most of us can invariably find time to do small, time-wasting things, like look at social media, or watch a show, or look at YouTube videos. We may even be spending time doing productive things, like reading or exercising, but say we're too too busy to pray. The truth is, our time can be reorganized. And, to, and we can make room for communing with God in prayer. And if it's truly the, the case that you feel there are no time-wasting or leisure activities you can cut back on, it might be necessary to cut back on some seemingly important things in your life that you might be able to hand off to somebody else because there's nothing more important than meeting with God in prayer. And if we aren't feeling close to God... Isn't the proper response to reach out to him in prayer? If we're feeling distant from a family member or a friend and we want to be close to them, we open up a line of communication with that person. Why would it not be the same with our Heavenly Father? And we might respond that he never seems to talk back, in which case perhaps we're ignoring the 66 books which he's divinely inspired which tell us beautifully who he is and how we can relate to him. God's word also provides a wealth of knowledge on how we can respond in the times when we're not sure what to pray. In any case, we simply cannot persist in prayerlessness if that's the state we're in. We cannot hope to thrive as Christians apart from prayer. John 15, 5 through 8 says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away into a, like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish in my name, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Even if you are someone who's consistent in prayer, there's always room for growing in prayer that glorifies God. We grow in sanctification as we rely on Christ through living lives that are soaked in prayer. I hope that as we look at some ways to apply concepts from Paul's prayer in Ephesians, that we all might be more equipped to engage in prayer. Just as Paul offers supplications for the Ephesian church in this passage, we should also offer supplication for believers in our lives. We should especially pray that our brothers and sisters would grow in sanctification as we can't fight the spiritual battle we live in alone. In the well-known Ephesians 6 passage on spiritual warfare, Paul writes, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words may be given to to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel 
We can especially focus on praying for the sanctification of other believers, which we often overlook in our prayers. We should continue lifting up physical and emotional needs that other believers have, but being in touch with people and praying that God would continue to make our brothers and sisters more like Jesus is the most loving thing we can do. And we have a great model of that in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. And we can pray for the ministries of other people in our church and missionaries who've been sent out, just as Paul requests in Ephesians 6. Jesus also models a prayer of supplication beautifully in John 17, which is called the High Priestly Prayer, where he prays things like, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And I make known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Praying that our brothers and sisters would be sanctified in the truth and know God and his love more deeply is always good. Some practical ways we can pray for people are tools like prayer guides, which you can make yourself or the church might make, which can keep track of church ministries and missionaries that we can lift up in prayer. Another practical idea is to divide the church directory into sevenths and pray for people each day of the week during your normal prayer time. And if that's too daunting, maybe writing down a more manageable list of a few people who you might know from small group might be a way uh, that, that you can lift up other believers. We can also offer supplications for things that we're passionate about about and gifted in. We have particular giftings and passions within the church. So praying for these special things that we're passionate about, encouraging others to pray is a great way to ask God for help in whatever it is. And really Paul is praying for something that he's passionate about in Ephesians 3:14 through 15 because he's given this special ministry to the Gentiles. So whether it's children's or youth ministry, international outreach, hospitality, music ministry, whatever it might be, we should look to God to cause it to flourish. Similarly, if we or people around us recognize a gift in us, we should pray for that gift to grow and ask God for discernment on how we might use it to his glory. We can offer supplication with other believers. So praying together with other believers is another gift that God's given us. I know that there's a prayer meeting going on tonight at 6 o'clock that, that I heard about um, that would be a great way to apply supplicate, uh, praying in supplication together. It's vital to have a private prayer life as a believer, but praying together with others is also a huge blessing from God whether it's a full church prayer meeting or prayer as part of a small group, corporate prayer allows believers to make requests known to one another and bring them before God in supplication. We can meet with friends and family before work or after work to lift up specific things, to pray for the people in our lives who might not know Christ. And God sometimes 
responds in especially powerful ways when a church decides to pray together. This is often when revivals happen in churches. Uh, but yet we, we often don't make use of this. We don't often gather together in prayer. In Madison, let's be a group of churches that changes that trend and puts a lot of focus and trust in what God will do through corporate prayer. Again, we can offer supplication for those who don't know Christ yet, whether it's neighbors, co-workers, friends, and family. If you don't know many people who don't know Christ, start with the few you do know, and then look for ways to meet others who don't know him yet and, and share his love with them. You might see God use it to bring opportunities to share the gospel with people you pray for, or may even see them come to know our Savior. It's also good to pray for those who do not know our God and may have never heard of Christ around the world. There are good resources like the Joshua Project and the Voice of the Martyrs, which offer guides for praying for unreached people groups, as well as highlighting the areas of the world where there's a lot of persecution of Christians. And we can offer supplication even when we don't know what to pray. Jesus, the perfect man, has given us a prayer in Matthew 6, 9-13, through 13, which has come to be called the Lord's Prayer. These words that Jesus taught his disciples are never empty and always bear fruit. The Lord's Prayer also contains supplications, asking for God to bring his kingdom, for his will to be done, for him to provide daily bread, to forgive trespasses, and to, lead his, to not lead his people into temptation and keep them from evil. God always honors these supplications made from the heart. We can pray the Lord's Prayer verbatim, when we aren't sure what to pray in a given moment, or we can pray it simply because the words of Christ's prayer are always relevant, powerful, and true. The Lord's Prayer can also be a guide that you, we can use when forming our prayers. The Lord's Prayer and Paul's Prayer in Ephesians three fourteen through 21 are both very Godward in their focus and focus on his glory above all, which helps us to know that we shouldn't be focusing on ourselves too much in our prayer times. There are many other passages throughout Scripture that record prayers we can repeat and expand upon. Psalms is full of prayers that we can read either individually or with groups that can anchor our prayers in biblical truth. Praying through Scripture as a discipline is extremely valuable in the life of a believer as we reflect on God's word back to him in the form of prayer. So we have a glorious God who blesses his people richly, and he is worthy of all of our worship, praise, and adoration. Let's grow in our sanctification. Let's labor in supplication on the behalf of others. God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or think And he can do it through us. Let's seek him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. 
you that. It's always true. It's always applicable. Thank you for the many prayers that are modeled in Scripture. I ask that we would all be people who continue to grow, people of prayer, and people who know your vast love, who know that we're loved by you, grow our knowledge of you daily and our our love for you and for those around us. It's for your glory that we pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.